On this special episode of Hidden Noise, we are presenting you with recordings from Digital De Suite, a symposium on blockchain and the arts held during Freeze New York in May 2018. Over the last year, blockchain has dominated conversations about technology and its relationship to markets, from currencies to crypto kitties. For the arts, whose markets are largely opaque and unregulated, blockchain technologies have the potential to fully upend traditional models. Even Magazine partnered with Ace Hotel, Data Editions, Monograph, and Tech NYC, and together we invited artists, entrepreneurs, and established players in the art market and tech communities to participate in panel discussions and solo presentations. We have three segments in this first half of the episode. The first is an introduction by Evens editor Jason Farrago, who spoke to the live audience about why a print magazine would care about blockchain. Then artist Sarah Miojas discusses her Bitcoin project and subsequent use of blockchain technologies in her practice. And finally, we present a panel discussion with artists Sarah Miojas and Artie Vierkant, alongside Hugo Liu from Artsy and Kevin McCoy from Monograph. The conversation was moderated by Triple Canopy's editor, Alexander Provan, and the discussion covers an enormous range of topics, focused on how artists are trying to find their own agency in the space of blockchain. Intellectual property and copyright and resale royalties are not only part of the art market, but also a major influence on their artistic practices. So now to Jason. Hi, everyone. Uh, I'm, I'm Jason Farrago. I'm the editor and the co-founder of Even Magazine, and um, I really want to say how happy we are to be co-hosting this event. Um, much of the credit uh, goes to the man who was just speaking, so thank you to Greg Bresnitz for putting this together, and thank you for including us on um, such a formidable uh, group of participants of the Ace Hotel Data Editions, Kevin McCoy from Monograph, uh, and Tech NYC. We're really proud to be among them. Uh, when Rebecca Ann Siegel and I uh, founded EVEN in 2015, we were really insistent that we wanted to have a publication, what began as a publication and is now a podcast and is very much interested in events as well. We wanted to do something that was absolutely committed to thinking about the art world and thinking about the real world as intertwined terms. Um, we have just so often heard about how things work in the art world, as if the art world was this kind of rabbit hole, and then the real world was this thing outside the rabbit hole. That's not right. Um, and really, at the magazine's core, is this strong belief, this, 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 this founding belief, that, um, that culture is an essential tool in how we see the world and vice versa. And that's certainly been what we've tried to do at the magazine. Um, when we've written about Brazil, we've insisted that if you understand the economic crisis, you can understand the art and why the museums are in trouble, and vice versa. We have insisted when we look at Korean cinema that, you know, why are all of these movies gangster movies and horror movies that everybody is loving? That has political roots and has also political consequences. So the art world and the real world, that kind of multidisciplinary approach uh, it's, it's actually quite a New York approach to, to things, and um, happily here in New York, we're not alone. Um, our friends at Tech NYC sort of take a similarly cross-disciplinary approach. This is not a one-industry town, and the way that Tech NYC has tried to, is already making New York something that could very soon become really a, a, the central city for tech in the United States um, is something that we've admired and we've been watching very, very closely. Um, so as for the program that you are going to have today, um, 
we, we did not want to have a sort of parade of well-funded startups. There are enough of those out here. We wanted to do things a little bit differently. Um, so we really brought together a pretty large range of people, journalists, academics, uh, voices from companies like Bloomberg and Sotheby's um, and some disruptors as some of the tech people, I mean, that's your word, not mine, um, from the, these, these very same well-funded startups. Um, we have participants who have a pretty under, uh, intimate understanding of the art market, which is uh, a uniquely opaque market, a market that has uh, notable high barriers to entry, but also for some of the same reasons, has vulnerabilities that this technology, that these technologies um, uh, can exploit. Um, but above all, most important, and this is something I can reiterate every day of the week, most important, we have a number of practicing artists. Artists are our most talented forecasters. Um, they are the people who experiment, they are the people who push our conversations forward. And so we are really delighted to be joined by so many of them today, uh, both doing solo presentations and appearing on some of our panels to tell us about their work, to tell us about their thoughts on blockchain, uh, to talk about the decentralized technologies in a more general way. Um, we're also really delighted to be presenting a specially commissioned piece, as, uh, as you were just hearing, by Hayden Dunham, which is supported by Data Editions and Tech NYC. Um, Certainly at Even, we've cared about technology in our writing. Uh, the current issue that um, you might have picked up on the way in has, an, uh, has a piece that I was proud to publish on Google, uh, Google's attempts to build an entire neighborhood in Toronto. Um, despite that, despite the fact that I've sort of gotten better at InDesign as we've been doing this for the last couple of years, we are not the tech people in the room. We are going to defer to um, uh, people with greater technological expertise than us. Um, but we have done our homework. And it is clear that blockchain has become a pretty essential part of conversations about the future, conversations that we intend to be uh, wholly participating in. Um, and there's a lot to say um, about the political overtones, about the ecological consequences, which is a particular interest of mine, um, about legal questions, um, both art and cryptocurrency have uh, to put it mildly, uses and misuses. Um, and, and, you know, we could have wallowed in CryptoKitties stories. My God, the number of CryptoKitties stories I read as we were preparing this um, uh, is too many to count. But we really wanted to have a conversation about blockchain on a different level, not a conversation about creative and talented designers who bring product to market. We wanted to have a conversation that is with artists, around artists, um, the people whose work is inflected and reflected in the technologies that we're talking about and who can drive these processes and who can make us rethink these processes. Uh, one of them, uh, an artist I've actually known for quite a while, is, is Sarah Mayohas, whose uh, project Bitchcoin was one of the very first and one of the loudest creative forays into this field that I first saw. I'm gonna pass it on to her. Um, my name is Sarah Mayohas. Uh, I did this project when I was still in grad school, and it was really the first big project that I did. And so this, to me, is is you know re revisiting something. I created Bitcoin in 2014 um, and launched it in February 2015. And so to give you a sense of the crypto space at the time. Ethereum launched five months later in July 2015. And in fact, I remember being confused whether Ethereum was a more technical uh, art project, um, given its allusion to Newton's ether, which is an imaginary substance. Um, this is all to say that I made Bitcoin when Bitcoin was not yet totally part of the mainstream. 
and when the image of Bitcoin was really as this nascent online phenomenon. I made it as part of an exhibition with Ware, which is the name of an art space. Um, it was located in a shipping container in Brooklyn that you could only see via a webcam. And I turned the shipping container into a mine and it was mining Bitcoin. So, so what is Bitcoin? Bitcoin was a cryptocurrency um, backed by my photography at a fixed rate of 25 square inches of my photographic prints per coin. Um, this, this is some fan art that was made to describe it. Um, <laughs> Uh, and, and theoretically, as my work changes in value over time, so would the relative value of Bitcoin. Uh, and so when I released a number of Bitcoins, it was matched with the placement of a corresponding set of prints uh, as per the exchange rate in a safety deposit box for safekeeping. And when um, people purchased Bitcoins, they actually... At the time, like nobody wanted to, you know, actually have something like digital. It was just too complicated. So I gave them physical certificates, and on the front was the public key, and on the back was the private key, and they could, you know, turn it back into prints at any time. In fact, one buyer did and exchanged his bitcoins for my prints. Uh, this is, you know, the the program, which was not that difficult to make. I just paired up with someone I found on a Bitcoin chat room. <laughs> and this was the first photograph that uh, backed it. it. It started a series that I called, in retrospect, it's kind of funny, speculations. Um, <laughs> so, and backing, by backing a currency with photography is itself kind of interesting because photography is endlessly reproducible. And artists print and edition their work to create scarcity and create value in a print. And it's really no different than governments printing more or less money. So there it is in the safety deposit box. Um, so despite um, issuing only 100, 250 coins and never opening the network for fear of hacking, it, Bitcoin gained a lot of traction on the web. And so I can say it circulated more as an idea than a coin because there weren't that many coins. And there were articles all over the place. There were articles in Chinese that had pictures of a man painting. It was, it was quite funny. This one I found pretty funny because, you know, it was covered by, you know, New York Times wired, like, reputable publications. But this was funny because my endorsement of Bitcoin is higher than Larry Summers likes the idea of Bitcoin. <laughs> so, and the reason I came to even look at Bitcoin uh, was because I have, so I have a business background, um, and I was interested in the concept of value. Uh, and the reason I made this uh, this way was because I learned, like, read a lot about reflection as a metaphor for value, right? You, when you think of value in a very condensed sense, it's always created through replacement like in an exchange, one is in the place of the other. And as I was reading more theoretical texts, uh, maybe I was just mistaken, but the, the direction of the reflection was always like in different ways. So 
you know, going back to Plato, material reality is a reflection of the ideal form, but then when you read Marx, it's like different. He, you know, I, to quote, he says, any commodity you please to select may serve as mirror of the linen's value. So the relative commodity expresses its value in the body of the equivalent commodity. So I chose to make photographs with two mirrors, two-way mirrors, they mirror each other, the light is caught essentially bouncing between the two planes, ex ex uh, you know, exchanging. So there's specular relations, hence speculations. And obviously when you think about value, the, the one thing you think about is money, which is society's universal equivalent for value. And for a long time, money functioned um, in a tight feedback loop between spiritual investment and economic use and in the material gold. Right, and at the very beginning, temples were treasuries, and it's the same quote fideism that links faith in God with money. It's yeah, it, they're together. And another Marx quote: um, "Just as the exchange value of commodities is crystallized by their process of exchange into gold money, so is gold money sublimated in its currency into its own symbol, first in the form of worn coin." then in the form of subsidiary metal currency, and eventually in the form of a worthless token, paper, mirror, sign of value. And it's interesting to go back to this because Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, they're really a metaphor for gold, right? You mine them um, and like it's a coin, right? Um, <laughs> and so, Eventually, though, I, I came to think of crypto cryptocurrencies as a crisis of faith um, because with cryptocurrencies, social relations can be abandoned in the favor of machine relations. You don't need to trust God. You don't need to trust other people. You don't need to trust your government. And there is obviously a cost to that trust, right? And that's the environmental impact of uh, this metaphorical mining, um, which you know is computing like r hashes over and over and over again, and uses an insane amount of power. Uh, and like this is, you know, we have the privilege, and and this was appealing to me a while ago because I kept thinking, you know, we have the privilege of living in the U.S. with a really stable currency, but for people who live in a country where, you know, like Argentina where currency fluctuations really, really affect you, then something like Bitcoin could be a viable alternative. And, but the truth is that the like, decentralization and the goals of decentralization that the crypto community espouses um, is really not, in my opinion, um, not a good thing. Uh, regulation is important, and we've seen that, you know, like a lot of you know crypto projects are essentially uh, scams. Still, I did think about how to take Bitcoin and make it bigger because it got so much attention. I thought, well, I hit on a nerve with this backing of like a coin. And what if you did it with something else, something that had real value? What if you did it with real artworks like Picasso's? And I immediately put that idea to rest, really, because that's like a security. Uh, and that would be regulated by the SEC. Um, and any way you slice it, uh, a painting doesn't generate revenues that can justify the cost of listing on like 
the stock exchange. Um, and frankly, it's the physical and idiosyncratic nature of art that is, I came to realize, the sort of final resistance in the commodification and financialization of art. Um, and that's truly what Bitcoin kind of relates to. It doesn't really relate as much to blockchain as a technology. It relates to um, like turning myself into a financial product. Um, and that relates more to you know, the financialization of art. Because I, I, I think blockchain is interesting, um, but I don't think it's revolutionary, and I don't think decentralization is the solution for a lot of the uh, applications that blockchain is now touted for. Um, so that, uh, so I could, um, there is, and I'll talk a little bit more about the financialization of art because I think that the way blockchain attempts to provide transparency is actually part and parcel of that development. Um, where am I on time? Five minutes, great. Um, so, in 1986, um, there was an economist named William J. Baumel, and he argued that art could not serve as a profitable investment. He used centuries of data, and he demonstrated that the average rate of return for art was practically zero. He called, it, he called the prices inherently rudderless, that the price of art is incapable of signaling any actionable information, and that the market exhibits random behavior. But then in 2002, um, Ping Mei and Michael Moses uh, released, cast doubt on this, and they assembled a data set of repeated sales from 1875 to 2000 in New York and used a new regression technique to determine the risk return characteristics. And they found that paintings outperform some traditional financial assets and exhibit lower volatility and lower correlation with other assets, making art investment a desirable candidate for portfolio diversification. And I think this is part of like the same boom, like there wasn't a painting before 1980 that was sold for over a million dollars. And it really led to you know, the financialization of art. And as a result, also the, uh, you, know, you have a problem of what do you do with physical art objects between the sales. Um, and so that's how the logistics industry uh, sprung up um, around the globe, right? And, and, and this, is, this is not just in art, right? If you go back to something else, like advances in 19th century warehousing and elevator technology, for example, allowed for a higher volume of grain to pass through Chicago's shipping yards, spurring the development of futures contracts to assemble large enough bundles of credit to keep the grain flowing. So we get to this you know, big logistics business, and now it's interesting seeing all of the applications of putting art on the blockchain and making it transparent. Like Transparency, I think, is, is only, only seen as a good thing. And it can be a good thing, but I think it can also be a bad thing because it makes exchange like seamless, right? And and so it's just continuing, you know, first like it was the financialization, then like the logistics industry came up to focus on the physical part, and now like let's put everything on a, on a public, uh, universal blockchain 
and everybody can just exchange art instantly. And I'm not sure art is like so well served by that. So I guess um, to conclude, uh, Bitcoin was an early project. It was an attempt at you know, artificially creating a market, um, and it was, and that was the artwork itself, right? I was entering the market by creating one, uh, and you know, Andy Warhol made a factory in 1962. I like made a f made myself into a financial uh, instrument in 2015, and blockchain to me was interesting because of the metaphorical language uh, and its attempt to be so physical and its relation to gold. Uh, and I was interested in being part of the zeitgeist. Um, but now, having watched all the development, I feel uneasy. I'm Alex Provan. I'm the editor of a magazine called Triple Canopy. Um, and maybe I'll just, can I let you all introduce yourselves, um, since you know more about yourselves than I do? And <laughs> Possibly. Okay. I mean, we'll, we'll see in the coming minutes, but yes. Uh, my name is Ugo Liu. I'm the chief scientist of Artsy, which we're an online art platform. Hi, I'm Sarah. I'm an artist. I, yes. <laughs> uh, hi, I'm Kevin McCoy. I'm an artist and the founder of uh, Monograph. I'm Artie Vierkant. I am also an artist um, and occasional writer. Um, so I, I volunteered to moderate the panel uh, in part because I thought I would be the least qualified to provide any answers to any questions. Um, so I, I do edit a magazine that is largely devoted to the relationship between art and technology um, and that, that frequently deals with the political and cultural implications of new technologies, uh, especially as they are used by artists. Um, and I write somewhat frequently about uh, about similar subjects uh, and I've been following um, blockchain related phenomena for a while but uh, m much of it is beyond my comprehension especially on a technical level so I think I'll, I'll mostly ask you all questions and then try to uh, try to direct you toward each other as necessary. To me, uh, in thinking about these technologies, this is a particularly exciting moment in as much as there seems to be like a sudden and widespread sense of the, um, the arbitrariness or at least mutability of many of the cornerstones of our society, from currency to the architecture of the internet to the role of institutions. Um, and this is a moment when such questions and proposals for alternatives are increasingly welcome. Uh, at the same time, it, it's a cause for concern um, in as much as there's uh, an effort to address social or political problems via technical solutions, which Sarah um, mentioned. Uh, there's also sort of a kind of like zombified techno-utopianism, um, which you know, is more or less what got us to where we are today. Uh, and also a, a rush toward decentralization without regard for the value of institutions that might be undermined in the process, not to mention the social interactions that might be sacrificed at the altar of efficiency, transparency, and objectivity. Um, so with, with that in mind, I, I think we're, we're concerned with how artists and artworks utilize these systems, um, how their meaning changes as they are situated within them, uh, what, what they can make people do or think about uh, as, you know, as, as actors within those systems um, and, and how that relates to 
aesthetic choices um, and uh, forms of distribution as well. Uh, so I guess I, I wanted to start with with Kevin um, in, in part because you've um, you've been engaged with these uh, with emerging technologies for quite some time, uh, and and I read a, a cup an interview with with you in which you spoke about um, your interest in protocols and, and infrastructure um, that that underlie the internet. So I guess I, this is a somewhat general question, but um, uh, I wonder if you could speak about your career in, in art and, and technology in terms of the evolution of the internet and the political dimensions of these protocols. And um, you could speak about how your company, Monograph, uh, reflects what you've observed as the digital economy has transformed in the past decades, uh, especially in terms of the, the promises and, and perils of decentralization and the implications for artists. In five minutes or less. <laughs> three, three minutes. <laughs> three minutes would be really good. Uh, preferably. <laughs> um, yeah, so I um, have been working with, you know, kind of at this sort of edge of art and technology for a long time and um, in, in a lot of different formats. And I think that, um, and I work collaboratively with, with my wife, so it's always a, kind of a joint practice in, in the studio, um, you know, sort of an inherently multiple uh, kind of process. And uh, creatively, the, the, the driving questions, you know, this question of internet technology and, and media technology, uh, for us was a question of meaning, how meaning is constructed, and we did a lot of work around, you know, these kinds of ways in which messages can get put together, ways in which meaning emerges out of, out of systems, out of sequences of, of, um, uh, you know, sequences of ideas, sequences of images. Um, and then I think that for, for me, um, you know, kind of my blockchain journey, um, there, there was this shift in, um, in, in 2012, 2011, in the, you know, kind of in, in, in the uh, aftermath of the economic crisis, to this kind of question of the of value, like where is the, how is value constructed, what's the meaning of value, how is value ascertained um, and, and described. Um, and so that intellectually, that switch from this, personally, this from this kind of questions of how is meaning put together to how is value put together is kind of the backstory uh, to my interest in, in, in blockchain technology and the blockchain kind of phenomenon. Um, and so, you know, I, um, Kind of learned about it in 2010, kind of in kind of in the slash dot sort of moment when it was just kind of this weird little thing. Didn't pay any attention. Kind of returned to it um, in in 2012, um, and really was just kind of the year of 20, 2013 was my year of blockchain insanity. Just like the, the 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 classic rabbit hole year of just you know total you know all night promiscuity of blockchain <laughs> information and people and it was sounds steamy ridiculous ridiculous um emerge out of that and 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 so monograph it's funny that this is happening today it's four years ago today that um monograph launched at the at the new museum at the seven on seven conference and so like you said it's like it's kind of amazing that it's still happening you're still kind of involved in this in this thing um and 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 so just this idea of uh, you know does this you know is this this distributed immutable database uh, is that a mechanism for assigning value to digital works that otherwise would be infinitely reproducible you know in a you know not even in the benjamin mechanical sense but just pure exactly you know reproducible um and so uh it, it started off with kind of is this experiment to, you know 
to, 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 to see if that's the case. Um, the, it, it, it transitioned, and I could so relate to what, you know, your, your description of this idea that started off in an art context, and then, you know, this kind of question of, 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 of a larger venture, a larger business, a larger platform, whatever. And so, for whatever reason, I took that direction um, and, uh, and, 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 and have developed this platform, and now it's been alive for, for um, in its current state for over three years, and, and seen, the benefit of that is seeing a lot of kind of practical examples of what people do with it. You turn out, you, you have this tool of like, okay, here you can put material media on, um, on the blockchain. You can kind of create digital scarcity around it. You can create mechanisms for trading it, selling it, whatever. What are you, who comes and why and what do they do with it? Um, and that's been really interesting to see that from a kind of sociology perspective. Yeah, I'm, I mean, do you, do you have some particularly instructive examples as, as it pertains to these questions around uh, reproducibility and, and value and how an artist might want to um, assert control over, uh, over a work throughout its lifetime or at least set, set up certain conditions? Yeah. The, the, um, the, it, it's, it's important to remember in, in, in that kind of truly decentralized, you know, true in that kind of blockchain ideal where you're fully kind of self-sovereign, you know, distributed, kind of in charge of all your, all your stuff. It's a very precarious and very difficult position to be in, to maintain those private keys. I love seeing your, you know, kind of public-private keys. You know, tracking those down, in, you know, in, over the course of a year, two years, three years, four years, um, you know, because there's no recourse, in, you know, in, in that system, in that kind of fully disintermediated uh, approach that the blockchain Kind of has as a, as a utopian ideal, um, and so I, it's um, so so that value, you know, so it's precarious. It's difficult to to maintain um, uh, 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 kind of keep all that stuff all that stuff together. And then the other thing that I've learned is that, th and this is kind of my, my my opinion coming out of it, is it's much more about um, building community and galvanizing community than it is around. Um, this speculative store of value, at least when it comes to art. I mean, in, in, in some ways, it's like all of the, um, all of the, all of what the art world is of of people making and people doing and people being interested and coming together and wanting to be involved in that is still the fundamental dynamic. And whether it's kind of in, in, in the tokenization of it and the putting it on blockchain and making it transferable and all those things is is interesting and that really helps bring a community together around it. But it's much more about these other issues fundamentally. You know, I think that the the kind of uh, abstract speculative um, economics of it is, is is real and it's something to talk about. Um, but it doesn't change it, it, that in and of itself doesn't make people interested in your work. You know, and so uh, of the you know 65,000 works that are on the platform, it's it's that same kind of power curve where there's a slice that people are really interested in, um, and there's a whole bunch that people don't seem to be particularly interested in, um, and that kind of reflects larger economic, tr social, kind of facts of the world right now. Um. Unless anyone would uh, wants to respond, I, I just have a question for. Okay, so go ahead. Oh, I, I would kind of like to respond, actually, because um, some of the things that you were saying get to directly. I think why uh, why I'm here, the things that I like spoke uh, with the people putting it together about uh, kind of why I would want to have my voice in here. Um, I think Kevin, with like completely all due respect, some of the things 
that you mentioned ideologically are kind of the things that I'm most worried about, about not necessarily platforms that are created by artists like you, um, but how that rhetoric and those types of platforms get applied to things that are then later like financial product or even just, I mean, things like, uh, I guess, a competitor of yours, Kodak Coin or Kodak One or whatever, um, which I guess, you know, is, is certainly not quite the same thing, but I guess purports to basically be, I'd say, at a, at a simple level, like a Getty Images for crypto or something. Um, essentially, like, I mean, my take and my concern is that um, it seems to me kind of a bit of a minor tragedy, basically, to take digital objects and try so hard to put um, an idea of physical scarcity on them to the point that, um, you know, you do basically like burn a bunch of resources of the planet basically in order to, uh, you know, control who can download or see what film or image, um, who can repost like an image in a blog post or who can, um, you know, even download an image that can be then used for something which would otherwise be constituted as fair use, ultimately. Um, yeah, I guess. Do you want to respond? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the, this is the, the, the world of blockchain is um, galvanizes this kind of absolutism and often from the practitioners, it's a kind of utopian absolutism of like, this is going to change everything. But there's also a sense of kind of a pessimistic absolutism. And, and, and you know, like reading the Kodak Coin white paper, it's like, it's laughable in this sense of like, that's, it's like, it's impossible what's happening. You know, if you just kind of think about the, I mean, you, you, you make images, you know, all the time. And it's just like the thought that every single step of that transformative process is going to kind of be magically stamped and kind of stored as this kind of hyper DRM kind of nightmare um, is, <laughs> this is like, that's not going to happen. Well, and then beyond that too, you have, cause there's, you know, there's the aspect that is trading in digital goods or digital art. Um, through things like blockchain technologies, but also um, startups that are, like, I'd say, you know, predominantly probably within the discourse of art, actually most of the people who are working on blockchain are not um, artists like uh, the three of us. They're um, people more like Codex Protocol or VerisArt who are trying to do, like, blockchain-based certificates of authenticity. And when you look at their white papers, like you're saying, um, or their public statements even, um, they say things like basically the entire value, you know, you spoke of value, that the entire value of a work of art is based in its provenance and authenticity and completely ignores the social aspect or any kind of um, like public good that could be gained by uh, having something, you know, just the idea that something could be like free and openly accessible or could uh, affect culture in a completely non-monetized way is like anathema to these people or seems to be. Perfect. I'd love for you to respond. <laughs> yes, Artie. I totally hear you, and I you know, wake up and think about similar things, which is we're in a very interesting experiment together, witnessing blockchain. It's like the new housewives of Orange County or something. It's just like a microcosm that everyone is perfectly aware of, that there's developments happening. And um, it's somewhat unbalanced. Um, because right now it's very tech heavy. I, the, um, my go-to metaphor is always the internet 
Because in the 90s, remember when after the internet protocol came out and the World Wide Web came out, everyone was speculating about the future. Oh my God, we're going to walk, use VRML to walk through the internet. You know, we're going to put on glasses and walk from website to website and all these things. And um, it, it turns out that the, the core technology of the internet, the internet protocol, it's very helpful. It lets anyone with a server node register an address, and it lets anyone else find that address. And so it's really helpful, and then it got a lot of people to link to each other through hypertext. So the core innovation was very modest, but there was this huge um, kind of and very intense energetic vehicle and rhetorical vehicle that was created, and then a lot of people bandwagoned onto that. I, I, I submit to you that this is exactly what's happening now. The core technology is pretty revolutionary in blockchain because it is um, a uh, distributed immutable ledger, which is probably the first um, innovation in accounting in a long time. <laughs> um, Since double entry bookkeeping? Yeah, exactly. Um, and um, so that's really exciting. And also the Ethereum approach of having smart contracts and programmable infinitesimal tokens and the transfer of value from any party to any other party not controlled by a central organization, all revolutionary. But there is so much, there's so much froth. And I actually like to go through this exercise of seeing what's going on with, with discernment and concern, but also with some compassion for the fact that we're just all trying to feel out the elephant and try to figure out what, what it does. And we are in that period of froth. And yeah, I don't, I mean, I, I completely agree that I wouldn't say that like um, any technology is, or that these technologies are necessarily bad or evil or something, but I have a metaphor too, which is um, like, uh, so if you look at, for example, like the development of intellectual property, right? So intellectual property, if you decide to think of it this way, is a fundamental like revolutionary technology basically for managing the very things that we're talking about, rights, authenticity, all this stuff. It's initially applied in uh, like 16th century um, Venice and 18th century uh, Britain as um, a right for publishers, not for the people who are actually making the content. And that is that kind of gets to, I guess, the core of what I'm worried about, um, which is when it gets into basically another vehicle for uh, you know, like as Sarah was mentioning, like either financialization or for something for like capital to exploit, basically independent of, um, you know, it sounds like, for example, uh, Kevin's platform is to try and get, it seems like you're securing control for individuals over there. That's okay. the idea. Yeah. So, um, you know, there are ways of using it like that. Um, and then there are also like ways of extending that regime, like, uh, so that it benefits, like, not the people who are actually making the things, but the, um, the distributors, basically, like the middle men. Yeah, which I think is especially true if we think of it as an opportunity to perfect the existing uh, intellectual property regime, as opposed to, uh, as you know, as opposed to coming up with a radically different idea, um, and and also. Um, in terms of who owns and sells an artwork, and that uh, the nature of that commodity is quite different from the nature of a song or a record or a film. Uh, those are areas in which uh, 
authors or creators tend to have much less control over the intellectual property that they create, um, at least from the outset. So, yeah, I mean, that, that's, I guess, it's also a fundamental concern of mine, uh, especially as, as you create systems that enable individuals and corporations to, uh, you know, to continually assert control over a commodity throughout its entire life cycle. Um, and, and yet those, I mean, th those, those systems can for some or at certain times be emancipatory uh, and can guarantee that one can make a living, I suppose. Uh, I mean, you all, Sarah, also, in, in like an interview I, I read, you, you referred to Bitcoin as potentially granting the, the artist agency that is not currently available to her. And, and yet it's also a, a somewhat limited form of agency or it's, it's agency within a highly circumscribed realm. So I'm, I'm wondering if you could reflect on what, like what that agency is and, and what its limits are. When I, yeah, so when I, when I wrote that also, I was, if you looked on the original Bitcoin website, there were a series of really simple questions and answers, and so it was meant to also mimic, like, new tech startups that are like, what does it do? Like, who is it for? And, and so that, you know, that's why. But it was also meant to, like, angle towards, you know, exactly what he was talking about, like musicians and writers, right, where there's copyright um, and like they, yeah, they can profit off their work for many years. Whereas with artists, like there are no resale royalties, right? I sell my painting and then, f you know, forevermore I'm like locked out of that. Um, and that's something that, you know, artists have tried to combat in the past um, and never successfully because, again, it goes back to like this kind of the physical, um, the physical item, the physical object, uh, and private property in the U.S. is such a strong like legal uh, legal system as compared to Europe, actually, where there is some resale uh, percentages that go to artists, um, and so that's that's like really what I was kind of angling towards, that I could also control the supply, like I could create more bitch coins, I could drown the market, you know, I could con have more control. <laughs> I, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, does it kind um, of answer I, the question? Yeah, um, can I ask you if, um, so, so Ar artsy is, is still a somewhat traditional model in as much as it, uh, it's a platform that mediates between, uh, between purchaser and seller or, or artist. Um, and I'm, I'm curious if, like how you're thinking about these technologies in your work at, at Artsy and whether, whether you envision a complete departure from that model toward, toward something different that might account for these, um, these desires on the part of, of artists. Um, or, yeah, yeah or, and, and more generally, what your interest uh, in these technologies is in relation to, to the work that you do there. Sure, so um, for all these things, we're uh, aware of and following with um, excitement the developments um, in title registry, provenance, authentication, 
um, securitization of art, which is happening with a couple of smaller companies. Um, and we're following all those, but um, it has to meet the, the test of being good for our customers and our partners. Like, is it helping people? Is it improving the art buying or art owning experience? And um, so far, it, nothing has surfaced, but we are actively following all this with development. And I think it's very exciting in, in this, for people in art because um, the unique properties of blockchain support um, things that people care about that would be helpful, like um, to Kevin's company, uh, knowing, tracking unique objects um, and um, doing it anonymously. Um, and also royalties and tracking royalties and using smart contracts to automatically disperse royalties to artists. I think it's a very, very interesting um, uh, angle that's happening. And um, I, I think, just another metaphor, <laughs> uh, I think Ethereum is particularly exciting. You know, sometimes people think about Bitcoin and Ethereum in the same sentence. I kind of think of them differently. Bitcoin is a store of value. You can think of it as like a safety deposit box that anyone can have that has, has a ground truth and anyone can put it, anything into it for anyone else. Um, and it's secure. It's truly kind of mind-blowing that it exists. And then Ethereum is a way to program uh, tokens with behaviors um, and uh, to have um, economics involved in them. And I think of Ethereum as having created like a, they're like iOS, you know, and all these applications on top of Ethereum that are Ethereum compatible tokens, they're just like um, the App Store or DAP Store. And they're, um, it's, it's a, encouraged the whole ecosystem of innovation in legal, in um, provenance, and in, in, in royalties, and people to experiment with all these things. And they only have to um, show someone a white paper <laughs> and, um, and, and convince people, I think, newer wealth that is really much more um, uh, liberal with their ideas on what has merit. So it's created this interesting conversation, too. Yeah, I mean, I'm curious, would the automatic distribution of royalties to artists enhance the experience of buyers and sellers? It seems counter to it. I mean, I don't know what that experience is like, personally. Right, so um, we're, uh, we're, we think progressively because we think that a lot of trust um, has been entrusted in us. And we think that we want to grow the ecosystem. We are helping to grow the ecosystem. For example, I came to Artsy through um, its acquisition last year of a, a startup that I co-founded called Art Advisor. And what Art Advisor did was it um, was trying to solve the problem of telling people what art and artist markets are worth. And the obvious large artists have um, value Values. They have comps. You can look at auction results. But the longer tail of artists didn't really have any value information. Any art world participant can read the stream of, oh, they got picked up by this gallery or um, this art historical uh, achievement was, was met. And they can assess the value on it. So what we built was a secret decoder ring to let anyone um, boil down the cultural uh, data in art into value. And we were able to assess uh, value in 100,000 artists. Um, very much we um, from from that coming from that perspective, like we're thinking a lot about how to grow the ecosystem for um, for artists, for for galleries, for for patrons, um, and. Um, we, it's kind of the opposite of what the blockchain effect is because we're thinking what is like, we're super progressive. What's the next step we can take to grow it a little further from where we are right now, right? Rather than saying, oh, let's just shoot for utopia and throw out where we are right now. Okay. Um, I have a question for you, Artie. Uh, 
So, as we've been describing, them, the, a lot of these technologies uh, on a symbolic level uh, seem like they might demystify art, uh, in, in part by treating art objects as much like commodities with the same kinds of data uh, associated with them as possible, um, which, and, and that extends in my mind to, uh, to uh, clarifying the question of whether something is unique or reproducible uh, and what the terms around those qualities of the, uh, of the artwork might be. And I know in, in your work like hinges on questioning these terms, or it wouldn't be interesting if those questions like had had actual answers. So I'm I'm wondering how uh, how these questions relate to your work and and how your work um, or your understanding of your own work might be changing uh, you know, in relation to these technological developments. Um, good question. <laughs> I guess well for me. The, like those questions are part like part of why I really care about this topic basically because I mean you know, like a huge part of my practice takes place in this like realm of reproducibility like literally within like disseminated images um, which are like a whole part of the practice that if you know if you were trying to like quantify it or something like that within the um, what do you call it, like the art historical checklist metrics or whatever, um, like they wouldn't register at all. It has nothing to do with um, me working with a gallery or like having some sort of like institutional milestone or something like that. Um, it's all like within this more like opaque realm. Um, I think that, uh, yeah, I don't know. Maybe, like, what, what do you mean exactly? How do I reflect on them? Well, with I guess I, a lot of your work deals with the uh, uh, objects versus images, reproducible goods versus singular, uh, singular works, and um, and if uh, if if your work is entered into a system that clarifies the nature of the object, the degree to which or way in which it's reproducible and how its value might be affected, then uh, uh, many, many of these, these conversations about those categories and the way that they are used to, uh, to interpret and ascribe meaning to a work uh, dissipate. Um, or, or, or perhaps uh, uh, the, these systems make those questions all the more interesting because of the impossibility of ever like, completely codifying uh, uh, an image, or, or you know, coming to some yeah. common understanding about what what a reproducible or non-reproducible image or object m means. I'd say I maybe more like agree with the latter. Like I'm interested in that <clears throat> in that like space of complication, basically. Um, and it, uh, yeah, I don't know. It like kind of like questioning the the like need for things to be so <coughs> regimented. Do you want to respond to that, Sarah, or, or Kevin? Yeah, I um, I also wanted to talk about like you know treating art like data, because we, you know, we live in a world in which it's it's um, 
everybody's always accumulating data, companies accumulate data and then try to glean insights on them. Um, a, you know, a company's business model might not be even, as we know, just like providing a service or you provide a service for free to then like accumulate data and then sell that data. And, and so all of the attempts of, you know, turning like, turning art into this online token um, and treating it like these, you know, playing cards, like maybe, I don't, I'm not sure what kind of like data or insights you're gonna glean from that. And I also am not sure what that's, um, you know, why, why we need to have insane amounts of images and data collected on art. Like sometimes it's good for things to get cleared out and disappear. Like I know like there's stuff on the internet I would like to like clear out. I don't need to see my early work sometimes. And, and so having it permanently in the blockchain is like I can never it's take terrifying. it out. You know, like it's, it might not be, you know, like things should sometimes just be forgotten. We don't need to, you know, be holding on to everything. And, and maybe contracts and promises should be broken too. Well, you know, what's interesting though in terms of smart contracts is like it's, it's treating code as law, mm -hmm. right? Um, and law is a meth messy thing that's always subject to interpretation. That's why we have a whole court system. And, you know, companies make contracts together, everybody thinks they're on the same page, and then years later, they're in court, like, debating the things that they signed, and they knew what the terms were. And so, I think that smart contracts are fine for things like uh, very simple bets, you know, or, but, but inevitably, you know, for more complex things, I'm, I really, I'm not sure how uh, code can be law. And I find the story of, um, with Ethereum, with the decentralized autonomous organization, it, it, that, was, that was quite interesting. Essentially, someone, it raised $150 million or some, somewhere around that amount. And then, and, and it, you know, the whole premise is like the code was law, as far as my understanding, maybe I'm wrong. Um, someone hacked it and siphoned off $50 million worth uh, and said like, you know what, this is legal, right? Because it's the code and I, and I was able to get it. Uh, and they had to decide, is he right? Do we like maintain the integrity of what this is supposed to be? Or do we, you know, make a fork and create another ether and then like, you know, he, like he can't have his fifty million dollars, and that's that's like what they did. But for a while, there was this like phantom ether, and the guy who stole it was sending messages like support me. So you know, um, and so that's you know maybe things like that can get fixed. But uh, ultimately, I think um, smart contracts will be limited. Do you have comment? I mean, I think contracts? that I, I guess I'm I'm kind of optimistic, you know? <laughs> like, to go back to your point about the internet, internet protocols, you know, and it's like, it's kind of amazing. It was like magic when you could send an email to somebody in Germany and when you saw kind of a web page and, and, you know, the open source software movement arrives and Bitcoin, you know, is this way to like model value in a certain way and then that's open source software and then you could find somebody on, you know, on, on, on Bitcoin chat and, 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 and you know, make a fork of it and then say, but this coin is 
my photographs and here it is and then have these conversations with people and it's like it's fun you know it's really fun and kind of crazy and and sort of insane you know and um you know <coughs> ethereum bitcoin like these are open protocols you you know it the, the journey starts with you choosing to download the software who knows why somebody would just choose to do that there's lots of things you could choose to do in a day and it's like i'm gonna like download this and like run it and like get into it and like see what's going on you know and so it's like and this is happening in the context of like just mass insanity of the internet of like you know images everywhere memes everywhere messages everywhere software tools everywhere and um and you know i don't know if it's good or bad uh but it's like there's just all kinds of amazing just strange things happening and so like when i my point earlier about building community it's like you know there's this community that formed around bitcoin um and this you know strange community you know and 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 the same thing is happening with you know this kind of tokenization of, of art it's like i almost uh, you know i you know I, i've come out of the studio i kind of don't care what the institutions are doing i'm interested in like what i have access to and what i can build and what i can what i can put together and kind of see what happens it's all kind of an experiment i just like one question. yeah go ahead, go ahead. so like the, the just main the response to that is like that all doesn't exist like prima facie that uh like you need to actually put things in place to protect and like as Sarah brought up regulate that um, like it's also like magic that Amazon can threaten to turn up like basically flip a switch and turn off all of uh, signals access to its servers um, and that like they you know have that power to do that it's also like magic that uh, you know, uh, an election can happen and Ajit Pai can become the FCC chairman and like fundamentally threaten everything that, um, like all of the great stuff about the internet that you just mentioned, at least within the United States. Um, and just to, um, I'm, I was really glad, Sarah, that you brought up um, like kind of the legal aspect because one quick thing that I wanted to get in just right at the end is that um, this question of like artist resale stuff, um, the like the actual technical mechanism, it's like great that people are working on doing that, but actually like the art world is a small place. It might seem like a big place because like Freeze is right now and like everyone's right here, but like it really is actually, if you look at it, like ev kind of every, not everyone, but like a huge amount of people are right here. If we really wanted to, like we have a judicial system and more than that, we have like a community that we can create standards for. We don't need to like, create like the, the the technological apparatus doesn't fundamentally matter it's a decision that we can actually make if we wanted to do that okay um i think we'll have to end there thank you and with that we'll close this part one of digital to suite we are absolutely delighted to be sharing this content with you through hidden noise please stay tuned for more conversations about blockchain and the arts